Well, hello everyone. Happy Friday. It is indeed that time again for the best Friday ever. And as I say, almost every Friday, if not every Friday, I can repeat myself quite often. If it's not the best Friday ever, I hope that this makes it at least a little better. So I wanted to cover a topic today that I think that each and every one of us have dealt with at some point in our life that is, um, it can be almost crippling, debilitating, and it can be one of gripe, uh, one of gripes, one of life's greatest inhibitors of a full, happy, and joyful life, and that is this thing called fear. And here's the reason why I wanted to deal with this topic. One, okay, so a lot of the topics that I bring to you on things that I try to give. I hate to even say advice, but let's face it. That's what I'm trying to do is give you advice, give you some guidance, give you some tools. A lot of the things that I'm uncovering or that I'm I'm bringing to the fore on this show are things that I have personally dealt with in my own life. And one of the biggest ones for me has always been fear. And let me explain this. Now, fear comes in many different flavors, as all of you, I'm sure, can attest to. And here's what it looked like for me early on in my life. So... When I graduated from undergrad and I took my first job, it was at a uh, division of a company called Computer Sciences Corporation. And the division that I worked for, it was a standalone, a standalone subsidiary. And the large national credit bureau, Equifax, which many of you have heard of, they had a put on my company. What that meant was they had the right to purchase my company by, I won't bore you with all the details, by some deal that had been done Uh, years before I joined the company. And so I always had lingering in the back of my mind this idea that one day Equifax was going to exercise this put and I'd be out of a job. It never occurred to me that I might be actually good enough at my job that Equifax would keep me on board. I just always thought, you know what? If they exercise that put and they acquire CSC credit services, I'm out. I'm done. I'm gone. I'll lose my job. And so it was about six months to a year into that first job that I got scared and started looking for another job. Well, then I go and I work for an executive search firm that was started by one of my colleagues at CSC, a guy named Chris Myers, phenomenal guy, one of the most successful human beings that I've ever known in my life, just a terrific guy all around, good dad, good businessman, uh, just awesome, awesome, prince of a guy. And he treated me basically like a, a younger brother. I go to work for him, but it's a small startup And the fear starts to set in. What if? What if this company doesn't make it? I just don't know. I'm about to, you know, about to have our first child. And again, fear starts to settle in. So before I even give that opportunity, it's due. And by the way, I was making really good money. I mean, the the company, it still exists today. Chris is still running the company. He's made millions in this company. I could have made millions at that first company or that second company rather in my, on my resume. But Fear set in, and I escaped, and I went to another company. And this went on until finally, I at 28, I opened, I, I bought my first business and whatever. But for me, that's what fear looked like for much of my life. It was, it would cause me to get, I would worry about something that could happen. It hadn't happened, right? It only existed in my imagination. This thing that could happen would cause me to make these Big, life-changing decisions. I mean, deciding where you're going to work, deciding your career is no small choice. And I ended up, as a result of this, and as I look back, now there were other factors also um, that I dealt with as to why I job hopped so much early in my career, but not the least of which was this idea of fear. And right now we're living in such a weird and uncertain and and crazy times, I thought, you know what, this would be a good time to really dive into to fear and give some practical applications that I've used through the years to deal with fear. So I want to tell you about one of the first. So those of you who are in business, and even if you're not in business, but for the entrepreneurs out there, this is one of the greatest bits of advice that I ever received from a local business owner here in East Texas, a guy named Robert Pelche, very successful car dealer and a very successful business guy. When I first moved to Tyler and I bought my first real estate company, uh, Robert and I would have lunch almost every week, and he served as a mentor to me. And one of the greatest pieces of advice he gave me, one day I was 
I was talking to him about how I was afraid of not succeeding in my business. Now, you have to understand something. That first company that I bought, folks, I had I did not have the money to buy a company. Um, all in that acquisition, it wasn't huge, but given the real estate, the office building that I bought, plus the business, it was about $500,000. But I was 28 and I didn't have 500 grand, so I leveraged myself to the hilt through owner financing, some bank financing. I What little savings I had, I put in reserve to to get me through. And I was constantly scared to death of going broke. I was in a new town and a new business. And I was sharing this one day with Robert. And here's what he told me. He said, all right, here's what you do. I want you to do the same thing that I've done. Now, obviously, his business was significantly larger. But this is a practice that he had implemented early on. And he found that it worked really well for him. So this is how I want to lead into how you can most effectively deal with fear. He said, what you do, he said, take out a note card. And he said, write down A, B, and C. And he said, and he said, this is what I've done. He said, if we go through, excuse me, if we go through some major uh, economic downturn that really impacts the auto industry, I know what I'm going to do. And that is something he said, something like, I'm going to reduce my advertising sales by this percentage. I'm going to look at my head count and possibly reduce it by this percentage. You know, he had all these things planned out. He said, that's scenario A. He said, if that doesn't work, I'm going to go to B. And then I've got a C. And so no matter how bad things got, whatever fear he could think of, whatever worst case scenario he could think of from, you know, bad, really bad to Chernobyl, he had some idea, some contingency plan for what he was going to do. And he said, I put that in my desk and I forget about it. And then I go about my business. He said, I work with the peace of mind of knowing that if something goes wrong, if something goes bad, I have a way planned out to deal with it. And that frees me from that fear going to my going into my business. And so that's what I did. I thought, and, and it was one of those magical things. And here's the deal. Here's what that, here's how to shorten up that strategy. It's facing your fears. You see, the thing that a lot of people think is that, um, that somehow people that are courageous, people that do magnificent things, you know, people that take on these incredible feats, you know, guys like Elon Musk in business, um, astronauts who are willing to go to outer space. I mean, I, I personally, I can't fathom being out in outside the, the earth's hemisphere and, and, and no oxygen, no gravity. That would scare me to death. Okay. But these people, we assume that they're just fearless, right? We hear this fearless. No, it's not about being fearless. It's like what Mark Twain uh, once said. He said, let me get this right. Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. And that's what I think that you and I always have to understand. Fear is there for a reason. Our ancestral mind, our amygdala, that, that right there at the front of the brain, it's a filter to protect us for, for survival. So it's, it's managing that fear. But what a lot of us don't do, and what I didn't do for years, was face the fear that existed only in my imagination, as most fears do. You know, Balzac once said, most of our fears lie in anticipation. Stop right now as an exercise and think about your greatest fear. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What do you think the actual likelihood of that fear coming to pass is. Okay. Now, chances are, if you really are honest with yourself, you know that the chance is probably pretty slight. It's whatever your greatest fear is. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not merited. It doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. In fact, that's the whole point of this is that it's, I, I can't stand here and nor would I ever, it would not be responsible of anyone to tell you, here's how you eliminate all fear. Do you know that there are actual people that have a, um, they have a, an ailment in their brain where their amygdala does not function properly and they have no fear. Now on the surface, one might think, well, that sounds great. No fear, but it's kind of like, when I think of that, I think of the, uh, oh, what was the, the green mile? If you remember the green mile, the tragedy at the end of that movie was Tom Hanks' character 
He had taken on John Coffey's ability for immortality. He never died. So on the front end, we think, gosh, if I could live forever, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Well, not if you become like that character in the movie where his wife had died, his children had died, all of his friends had died. He was living forever. And living forever and outliving everyone that you've ever known, that's not such a good thing. Well, it's the same thing in this case. Without fear, you die. If you don't know that you shouldn't pet a grizzly bear in the wild, then things are going to go bad for you. So fear is actually a means of survival. But then it comes down to how do we deal with that fear? It's not the absence of fear. It's not eliminating fear. It's how to have a healthy relationship and understanding and control of fear. That's what we want to get to. And that's what I have tried in my life to master because I don't ever want to make a decision. This is one of the things I would challenge you with. Ask yourself, if you're ever about to make a decision, are you making a decision out of fear? Fear-based decisions are generally not good decisions. And most of our greatest fears do, in fact, lie in anticipation. They're not real. It's imaginary. But we obsess over them. So whenever I was first trying to start, again, not eliminating, but managing fear, it was during this time that I really started to dive into Stoic philosophy. And Zeno, the father of Stoic philosophy, here is his his kind of his mantra, if you will, or his philosophy and Stoic philosophy buttoned up. Now, there's obviously there's more complexity to this, but I want to simplify it for the case for the for the sake of of, of this argument as it relates to fear. Stoic philosophy essentially tries to separate that which we have absolute control over, those things that we know we can manage and impact the outcomes of, and those things which we cannot. And one of the things that uh, maybe I'll include this in the show notes, a, a quick little diagram, a boss I had years ago first showed me this, and he was talking about how to manage a business. And he drew a circle, and he drew a dot in the middle of the circle. He said, these are the things you can control. And then he drew some dots outside the circle. He said, these are the things you cannot. If they are not in your circle, do not focus on them. Try to completely eliminate them. The Stoics were firm believers in taking like with laser-like precision and focusing in on those things that we had absolute control over. How many of you, like me, have been in situations where you were so fearful about how some other human being might act? Maybe a boss, maybe a spouse, a girlfriend, a mother, a father. Okay, well, here's the thing. We allow our fear of how another human might react, and we will often allow that fear to then control our own behaviors. <clears throat> Excuse me, my, my allergies are really wearing me out today. I'm sorry you have to listen to me keep clearing my throat. So in that situation, if you want to have, let's just let's bring it down to the marriage, okay? If you want to have a happy marriage, one that is full of trust, mutual understanding, love, and, and, and not fearful of, especially if, and look, some of us are just wired for, reasons of our background, the way we were raised, uh, the way our parents treat each other, whatever, with fear of, say, a spouse that has never given you reason to believe this, to never think of this, but you have a fear of them either leaving you, abandoning you, cheating on you, whatever the case may be. Well, I, let, me, let me explain something to you. You cannot, under any circumstance, control that other person. Now, and, and, and by the way, that fear may be completely unwarranted, unmerited. But if the fear is there, you got to deal with it. 
And that's the biggest takeaway I want you to have from this entire episode is you cannot just pretend the fear is not there. You can't talk yourself out of it. You can't talk down the fear. What you can do is you can place that circle on the wall, put yourself in the middle of the circle and go, and and, and the other party, put them outside the circle as it relates to what you have control over because you have no control over any other human being. The only one you have control over is you. So once you bring that into focus and when you start to think, how am I going to control my actions? What can I do? Well, let's say it is a matter of trust. You're dealing with trust issues. The single greatest way you can cause someone to not betray you, to not cheat on you, to not be unfaithful to you, is to you yourself be trustworthy, honorable, loyal, faithful. Those things you can absolutely control. You have 100% control over those things. Now, does it guarantee that the other person is going to act in kind? Nope, it most certainly does not. But it is the single greatest way to hedge your bets. And the bottom line is, it's the only thing you can do. You can only control your actions. Tim Ferriss uh, has an incredible uh mechanism or protocol that he uses for dealing with with fears and he calls it fear casting and he started doing this as a result of uh, instead of doing goal setting actually it was called fear setting that's it's not fear casting uh, it's in it's called uh, uh, fear setting and I mean it is I think it, it's genius and it, it talks a lot about what we're talking what we're dealing with here it's kind of like what I mentioned to you Robert Pelche's method and essentially what Tim Ferriss decided to do, and if you know anything about Tim Ferriss, it's, it's really kind of remarkable. And again, for those of you out there who do know who Tim Ferriss is, but may not know this side of Tim Ferriss, and you, you feel like you struggle with a lot of fears, you struggle with a lot of anxieties. Let me tell you about Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss is in every way to the outside world what you would call successful. He is wealthy. He lives life according to his, he has designed, he has mastered life design. He was the, his first big thing was his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, which was about life design. It's a small little book, massive, massive success, huge, huge New York Times bestseller, still sits at the top of the bestseller list on pretty much every major list out there. He is a Princeton educated, successful investor. He has now become kind of the Oprah Winfrey of podcasters. He's been one of the, he's had one of the longest, most successful podcasts ever. I mean, the guy has lived in every form of fashion a successful life. But if you have followed Tim Ferriss as closely as I have and listened to him and read his books as long as I have, you know this about him. Tim Ferriss suffers from depression, major insecurities major fears. He was picked on as a kid. He was bullied relentlessly as a kid. And to this day, I think he actually suffered some sexual abuse. I mean, he has suffered and he's brought those things into, and he's been very transparent about it. He's been very open. But the point is, he's also, as a result of these these dark places in his life, dealt with a lot of fear and anxiety. He's dealt with insomnia for years. So if you're listening to this and you're someone and you're thinking, my God, you know, what, what's wrong with me? Hey, look, the best among us deal with fears and anxieties and insecurities and depressions. And so what Tim did, he had gone through this, this time in his life where his, he was building his first, uh, his first company, which was Brain Quicken. It was a, um, I guess it was a protein bar company that he, that he had developed or, or created. And he didn't know what the hell he was doing. He'll tell you he didn't know anything about business. And he was working like 18-hour days, just, just not sleeping. He was taking pills to wake up. He was taking pills to go to sleep. He had a girlfriend that uh, finally said, I've had enough. I'm out because he was giving no attention to her. He was just burned, completely burned. And so he decided what would happen if I checked out and I traveled the world for, it was six months to a year. I don't remember the exact timeline. Which, imagine, you think, think about that for yourself. <clears throat> what would it mean to just go, I'm out for a year? Now, the first thing that would happen, you'd be flooded with all the fears of the what ifs, right? What could happen? Well, 
what Tim did in during this time was he he created this little metric. Okay. And so you can do this too. And again, I'll put in the show notes a little image of this that he uses where he calls this again fair setting. And it has three, imagine three columns on a piece of paper where you take as categories and you do this one. First of all, define it. Define it. Kind of like what Robert Pelche told me. <clears throat> you define the problem. What is the worst thing that could happen if you take the action that you're talking about? Let's say that it's changing jobs. Let's say that it's uh, taking the family on a trip around the world when you think to yourself, oh my gosh, and, and I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Uh, hopefully, I'll remember to come back to that. You're going to take some just what would seemingly be an extravagant trip. Okay, you, so you define it, and you think, okay, what's the worst that could happen? Well, let's say, uh, let's say that you decide I'm going to go on a trip around the world. And, I say, and this is one of the things that uh, Jim and I, we've talked about this very deeply with uh, because we want to take Ryland and Abby as a graduation gift on a really nice European trip. And that's scary for a lot of reasons. It's scary to be away from our, our businesses that long. The financial um, cost of it is going to be painful. And so we've written that down. And so we're going to, so we've defined it as what is the worst that could happen if you take the action. And essentially for us, the worst is lose some sales at the store, uh, just the financial impact of it, which basically, I'll, I'll tell you this. We would never borrow money to do a trip like that. So essentially, it comes down to, well, we would spend the money on this thing, and then a catastrophe would come up that the money we had in reserve or the money we used for the trip, we wouldn't have that money to use to overcome whatever catastrophe might befall us, okay? So then you come to the next column, which is defines the first one, then it's prevent. What specific actions could you take to reduce the likelihood of these situations happening? Well, essentially, what this means is that we have to focus deeply on having the staff ready and protocols in place ready for our retail business. You know, how are we going to communicate? How are we going to make sure that we have our international service plans set up? How are we going to make sure that we can get to our Shopify dashboard? How are we going to make sure that there's, you know, any, any out, outstanding projects that relate to our business are tied up and have a project plan already so that we know that we have at least hedged our bets to be away from our businesses as, as, as safely as possible. Let's have a contingency plan for if we've got four employees, they're all scheduled, one gets sick, two gets sick, what do we do? Okay, and so then you figure out what are the big actions to take care of that and to prevent that thing from happening, which essentially all you can do is just plan, right? So you make out the plan for all the worst things that could happen and how you're going to prevent it. And then finally, repair. If the worst situation happens, if, 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 if we lose two employees to, to COVID or something like that, what do we do? If the situation does happen, what would I need to do to get back to where we are or get back on the right track? So how quickly would we repair? And here's the thing that this does. So again, those top, that those columns are define the potential catastrophe. How can you prevent it? And if it happens, if the worst case scenario happens, how would you repair it? This does, a, this does several things. One, like Robert Pelche said, it frees up room in your head to move forward because you, you, you faced it. You stared the dragon down, and what you realize when you stare the dragon of fear in the eyes, it becomes significantly smaller. If the dragon, think of it like this. A lot of us, our fears are like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. The fear is up on the screen. It's this big, smoky, demonic-looking thing talking down to us. But it's crazy. When you go through exercises like this and you pull back the curtain and you look at the fear, what you find out is this feeble old man that you have blown up into this big monster, which, in fact, it's really just something that you could absolutely deal with if you had to. More importantly, what you'll find when you pull back the curtain is there's usually nothing there. And so I think this is one of the biggest things you can do is to define what the, the worst case scenario, define it, face it, write it down. And then what could you do to prevent it? 
And then if it happens, even if it happens, then how do you repair it? Now, one of the things that Tim does also that I think is very invaluable is he goes a step further and he talks about, or he'll, he'll actually list over the next, I think his time frame is three months, six months, three years. If you didn't do this thing, what will it cost? Tony Robbins does a similar exercise that he calls his uh, rocking chair test. When he's 80, sitting on a rocking chair, looking back on his life, what would the cost, what would the feeling, what would the emotions be for not taking a particular action? And this is something, I've mentioned this on the show before. I, I just read this book, um, I think it's called The Power of Regret, and uh, by Daniel, or is it, uh, always Stephen, uh, I think it's Daniel Pink. I always get Stephen Pinkerton and Daniel Pink mixed up. Um, but this one is, is Pink. And it's called The Power of Regret, I believe. And the thing that comes up as in most surveys, when people are dealing, I think there's a great one, there's a big survey called the, uh, the, the World Regret Survey, something to that effect that people can participate in. <clears throat> and most of people's greatest regrets are not the things that they did. Like you, you tried to start the business and you went bankrupt. I mean, bad. You, you, you took the trip and the trip sucked. It was awful. You got some sort of horrible parasite, whatever. Rarely are the major regrets that these people surveyed have things that they did do that didn't work out, but in fact are the things that they didn't do. And it sounds almost cliche. We hear this all the time. You know, you, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to lie there and think of, and regret the things you did. You're going to regret the things you don't. But it turns out that's pretty true. So what you have to do in a case like this where you're just looking at, do I take the action or don't I take the action? You have to take it a step further. First of all, you prepare for it. You stare the fear down. You get that under control. And then you start to think of yourself, what are the consequences of not taking the action? And all of this put together will shrink the fear. What about relationships? If you all have not seen this um, documentary about Tony Robbins that I mentioned earlier, um, it's called I Am Not Your Guru. It's on Netflix, and it takes you into his uh, Date with Destiny, his most popular seminar, and it's really quite remarkable. And there's this one scene where... He confronts this lady in the audience. I think there's like 2,000 people in this audience. It's huge. <clears throat> and he's talking to her about a relationship that she's in. And he asks her a question. He says, because he, he basically he asks several probing questions until he figures out that she is with a guy that she probably should not be with. And she admits that. And Tony Robbins, he confronts her and says, if he were here right now, what would you do? Tell me right now. And essentially, she says she'd break up with the guy. So he said, get out your phone. And the audience is like, what? And he says, get out your phone. Call him. Do it now. Get it over with. She does. And it's like, wow. She calls the guy. And, and I, told, I told Jim when I was like, man, I bet. I bet. Could you imagine me? This poor guy. He sends his uh, or his girlfriend goes off to this Tony Robbins seminar, and this happens. I mean, man, I'd be, he'll probably never let a girlfriend or wife or a partner go off to a, a Tony Robbins date with Destiny ever again. After that, that'd be a quite a deal. But anyway, point is this: so many of us stay in relationships that we know we shouldn't be in because we have this fear of hurting the other person. What will life look like without them? What will it do to the people around us? What will it do to our friends? Uh, there's a whole host of reasons why we don't sever ties with people that we know in our heart of hearts. We should not be in that relationship, but we have a fear of it. What if you were to put this process to place in place for that? Define the problem. If I break up with them, I'll hurt them. I'll, you know, okay. How can you not hurt them? How can you prevent this? Well, be honest, be gentle, have a plan. And let's say the worst case scenario. Let's say you tell them, hey, I'm ending this relationship. It's over. And they say, 
I, I, I can't function as a human being. What do I do? Well, then you think about how you can help other friends and incorporate the help of other friends <clears throat> and people that will, that will help you help them be supportive. But the bottom line, and then here, to me, this is a huge one as it relates to relationships. And I've been in this situation before. <clears throat> Man, this is aggravating. What do you do? What does it look like three months, six months, three years? If you didn't take this action, what does your life look like? It's three more months, six more months, possibly three more years <clears throat> of misery with this person when you could end it today. And you know, and you, but the thing is, what we do is fear, we leave it behind the curtain where the wizard is, we leave it up on the screen, talking down with the smoke blaring and all that, instead of just walking over, pulling back the curtain and going, and here's what we always find out. You, you and I, we've got history as a guide. We always think that for some reason, even though we have this rear view mirror that's full of history and full of moments where we, even if we didn't want to, the things that we were most afraid of, we went forward and it turned out to be not that bad. You know, somebody once said, you know what's on the other side of fear? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing there. So often, on, on the other side of fear, you get there and it's like, oh, really? So even with all the history we have of our life, to look back and go, first of all, ask yourself this question. Have I ever broken up or broken off a relationship before? My Lord, if you're of any age, surely you have. And by the way, put yourself in the other person's position. Have you ever been dumped? Have you ever had the relationship severed by the other person? Has it ever been, have you ever had the, the conversation with somebody and it's, it's me, not you? Sure you have. All of us have been dumped at some point. Did you survive? Sure you did. Well, what makes you think that you are so much more powerful and so much stronger emotionally than the person that you might be breaking up with? The point is, when, it, when it's, I want to go back to what Mark Twain said, courage. So we think of, again, we think of courageous people as these people that they're just fearless. They have no fear. That is not true. Winston Churchill was afraid during World War II. I can assure you. I guarantee you, he felt fear. Mark Devine, one of the greatest Navy SEAL commanders of all time and the founder of SEALFIT. Mark Devine knows what fear feels like. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's about to be crucified, knowing, knowing that this is his way to save the world. Whether you believe the story or not, if you know anything about the story, he's there and he's praying and in The Passion, uh, the movie done by Mel Gibson, I think he does a great job of illustrating this. Jesus is literally sweating and fearful in the garden. The fear was there. Jesus Christ himself felt fear before going to the cross. But then he faced it and said, Father, thy will, not mine, be done. You see, it's not about fear not existing. We are always going to be dealing with fear. Fear. But like Mark Twain said, courage is resistance to fear. It's mastery, not absence of fear. It's how we use it. It's how we take that fear and we line it up and look at that circle and think of the things I have that's within my control. I can overcome this mental lapse. I can, these are the things I can do. I can't control that other person. I can't control what the economy is going to do. I cannot control whether, you know, the, what, what's COVID going to mean? Inflation. Right now, we're dealing with this skyrocketing inflation and all the crap that's on the news and, you know, all the politics, all that. Let me tell you something, folks. You cannot control what Joe Biden does next. Neither can I. How many people are out there wringing their hands? Oh my God, is Donald Trump going to run for office? You have no control over that. Not one ounce. It's outside your circle. So what you have to do is you have to take this stoic principle of separating that from which you can control and that from which you cannot and focus on that which you can control. 
I love to talk about Nick Saban because he's the one who made this idea of the process famous, right? The process. And you saw it last Saturday. University of Texas is playing probably the best game they're going to play all year against the University of Alabama in Austin last weekend. Nothing was going right with the University of Alabama. And so Nick Saban, if he lived his life like the rest of us mere mortals, he would be constantly focused on things like, are you going to win a national championship? Are you going to win the SEC championship? Are you going to beat the University of Texas? But Nick Saban does not bother himself with the idea, are you going to win the national championship? Are you going to beat the University of Texas? Are you going to win the SEC championship? What Nick Saban, who is a student of Stoic philosophy, by the way, he's concerned with how well his team is going to perform the first seven seconds off the snap. And by being obsessed with the process and the things within the University of Alabama's control and teaching his players to execute perfectly, that that shows itself when you have Bryce take the team down in the most, I mean, it was just a textbook two-minute drill at the end of the game last week. A minute and 38 seconds left, and they march down the field, and they end up getting the win. Focusing on the things you can control allow you to show up and be able to handle a moment like that, a minute and 38 seconds, and you march down and you score and you win the game versus being constantly fearful of, oh, my Lord, we have to win the national championship, and if we do not, then we are, we're out. That's all that we play for every year. That can be crippling. It's the management. It's the management of the moment, of the present, and controlling that which is in your control. You have to be comfortable with making hard decisions. Decisions that are predicated by fear are generally pretty hard. Rarely is there not some sense of anxiety or fear. Or as Brian Regan, the comedian, once said, he was talking to Jerry Seinfeld on Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, and he was talking about being, um, being nervous as a comedian. And he told Jerry, he said, you know, to this day, I still get the butterflies. He said, but I don't mind. He said, because the good stuff always happens after the butterflies. Going up and asking the girl if she'll go out with you. There's butterflies before that, but man, if you're as lucky as me, you end up married to a girl that, I, I've said this about Jimlin often, you know, I, I was a little nervous before I decided to go to coffee with her for the first time. And I always tell people, I cannot say that Jimlin is the girl of my dreams. I, just, I can't. Because I never had the courage to dream that big. True. I was too scared. I'm not going to imagine for myself the most perfect spouse, the most perfect partner, the most beautiful Kind, loving, hardworking, independent, badass woman on earth. Man, I, you know, hey, I'm a pretty confident dude. But even I'm a little scared to try to make that my muse for someone that I might spend my life with. And then when she shows up, if you think I didn't have butterflies, you're crazy. But thank God on the other side of those butterflies was the woman I'll spend the rest of my life with. The good things happen on the other side of butterflies. Every single time. But life, there's a great quote by a former Olympian. He was an Olympian wrestler from uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe. I apologize, I can't remember. His name's Jerzy Gregaric, I believe. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But he was a student of Stoic philosophy. And by the way, he grew up during, uh, maybe he was from Poland. He grew up during the Nazi regime and went through World War II. And he created this group of peaceful protesters. That, and, and through that, that, that time, that's whenever he started to develop a Stoic philosophy of 
maintaining control in all circumstances, controlling what he could control, and that's what he taught to the rest of these peaceful protesters, is to not be influenced by outside forces. Don't let the fear get to you. Maintain control. And he had this quote, easy decisions, hard life. Hard decisions, easy life. A lot of the fears that we face that precede the decisions that we don't want to make because they're hard. If we're willing to step up to the plate, if we are willing to pull back the curtain and stare down the fear and find out what it really is and how we're going to deal with it, how we're going to prevent it from becoming a reality, and even if it does become the reality, what we're going to do to deal with that reality of the fear coming to pass. If we're willing to do that, we will have such an easier life. And that is my encouragement for you on this best Friday ever is don't run from your fears. Also, don't let them just swirl around in your mind like ghosts flying through. I imagine a brain with like these ghosts flying around just kind of poking you every once in a while, poking your amygdala, just kind of poking at you. Instead, turn the light on and like cockroaches, make the fear go hide and then be willing to go to the hiding place of the fear. And what you will find is what you thought was a 12-foot dragon or giant, whatever, is really just this tiny little gnat that's swirling around. Deal with it. If you are dealing with fear and anxiety and it's, and it's debilitating, the greatest advice I can give you is this. Start by writing the fear down. What are you afraid of? What is it that you're afraid of? One of the biggest ones I've told you guys about here not too long ago was I was afraid to stop drinking alcohol because I thought it was going to hamper some relationships that I had. I thought it was going to damage some really close relationships. That was unfounded. And it was a fear. But man, on the other side of the fear is I made the decision and everything's fine. Are you afraid of rejection? You know, that's the thing that fear will do. It will cause you to, again, not take action. But let me tell you something. Imagine that there's someone who you know. You, you know in your heart of hearts you need to tell them, I love you, I forgive you, I'm sorry, can I have your forgiveness? But you don't do it because you're so afraid that if you go to them and you say, can I have your forgiveness? And they'll go, no, no, sorry, I cannot forgive you. So therefore you let that fear determine the situation. But in that instance, I want you to think to yourself, is their response within your control? The answer is absolutely not. Whose is yours? So define what's the worst that could happen. I go tell them that I'm sorry and they reject my they reject it. Prevent. How can you prevent this? You go with a well thought out apology, acknowledging you know the hurt that you caused them, acknowledging you understand how they feel, and then and then explaining to them what their forgiveness means repair they reject you outright it doesn't you've given them the greatest soliloquy on forgiveness and everything i mean you just pull out all the stops how do you get back to where you were before you write down i'm okay it's now confirmed i know my worst fear of them rejecting me came to pass but I can now start working on that, and my conscience is free. I have done my part. And you can start to figure out how to repair, and then maybe you create a contingency plan. Maybe you say, and what I'm going to do as a result is I'm going to call this person once a month and just see how they're doing. I'll try to establish a friend, whatever the case may be. But what you'll probably find, and then when you go through that process, I want you to think about something. 
How many, and, and we've all had these times, I guess. I, I'm honestly, I can't think of, I, I, I'm going to, I know I'm, it's anecdotal, but I can't think of one time I have ever asked for someone's forgiveness and they just said, nah, sorry, not going to give it. Can't have it. I think I'm batting a thousand on every time I've ever told someone I'm sorry and been granted forgiveness. What about you? Most likely, if there's someone you need to apologize to, they're probably going to forgive you. So this fear is unfounded. It lies in anticipation. It's in your mind. Give yourself the gift of managing and conquering and understanding how to deal with fear. Otherwise, you might end up someone like Seneca was describing, the famous Stoic philosopher, when he said, He who indulges in empty fears earns himself real fears. If you live in fear, real fears will come upon you. I think it was in uh, Shakespeare's Henry V, and this was one of those that I, um, it took me a while to really kind of get my mind around this, and I've really tried to ever since apply this to my life. And there's a quote that, uh, I think it's in Henry V, where Someone says, a hero, a coward dies a thousand deaths. A hero only once. Don't live in fear. Don't live as though you're imagining yourself dying or being harmed or the worst case scenario happening a thousand times. Live your life managing fear so that You only have to die to fear one time. That one time it's actually merited. Another one from Seneca that's great just to hold on to. and It's a good reminder for me. We suffer more in imagination than we do in reality. Most of those people who live with extreme anxiety, that live with depression, most of the fears, most of those horrid, horrid acts that cause them the fear and the anxiety only exist behind their eyes, between their ears. There's not even a strong likelihood. I mean, if you really do the actuarials of so many of the things that we're afraid of. And when you finally get your mind around this, this idea of freeing yourself, it doesn't mean to be just com- a complete indifferent and aloof jackass don't get me wrong but when you can take on this mindset of i'm only going to invest my energy in those things that i have control over and the moment when you fear or when you feel fear well up within you write it down i am afraid I'm going to lose every penny that I own. If this inflation, if the stock market keeps crashing, if the Chinese take over, it, it, whatever the case may be, I mean, all these things right now, if, if so-and-so becomes president, if so-and-so becomes governor, if so-and-so doesn't become president, if so-and-so doesn't become governor, write down that fear. And then, write, what are you going to do if it does happen? <clears throat> Have a plan. What, what is that going to look like? Because, because look, Chances are you're still going to be here. If that thing comes to pass, you're still going to be around. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to control that which is within that sphere that you have controlled? How are you going to control your first seven seconds off the ball in life? Final message on the process. John Wooden, legendary NCAA basketball coach of the of the uh, UCLA Bruins. Coached greats like Lou Alcindor, later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton. Rarely, rarely did he ever talk about a win or a loss or the score. Both Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton have both been quoted talking about this. Coach Wooden rarely discussed a win or a loss or the score of a game. All he cared about was coaching his players to the best of his ability to play to the best of their ability 
And he knew, he knew that if he did that and they did their part, the score, the championships, it would all take care of itself. The first thing that John Wooden would do with a new class of recruits is he would sit them down on the the court and he would show them how to put on their socks. True story. He had perfected putting on socks in such a way that socks would last longer and they'd be less likely to cause blisters. That was something he could control. That was something his players, they could control. He stopped giving them chocolate during, uh, during practice or for energy because it made their saliva too thick and he thought it hampered their breathing. It was, those were things he could control. He couldn't control whether they beat Ohio State or not. He couldn't control that. All he could control, but he could certainly control what his players ate for energy and how they put their socks on and how they practiced and how many shots they took during practice and, and how the practices went. He could control all of that. He could control that to the best of his ability. And he could pressure and push his players to play to the best of their ability. He could control that. And they could control how well they played, how hard they played. They could control that. Couldn't control the score, couldn't control the championships. But here's the damn thing by controlling those things which he could control, eight. I think NCAA championships, maybe more. There might have been more. I think it was eight. Longest winning streak in, in NCAA history. I think he actually won maybe 11 titles and had 84 straight wins. That's what happens. And, and the man was a, an absolute legend, and he coached legends. Focus on that which you can control. And until those things you cannot enter your circle, your sphere of influence, leave them outside, leave them be. Because I assure you, you know, what the Bible said about don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough troubles of its own. It's the same thing with everything. There is enough that you can control for you to concern yourself with to last a lifetime. Don't bother yourself with those things which you cannot. And if you can master this, then you will begin the journey to mastering and managing fear. All right? Well, that's, uh, that's today's show. I hope that was beneficial. I hope, that, I hope that you all understand that managing and dealing with fear can be one of the most freeing and life-enhancing gifts that you will ever give yourself and like i told one of my friends before i came on the show whenever i advertised this is what the topic is going to be about he said i'm i'm surprised you deal with uh, with that i was like oh brother i'm a work in progress i'm always uh fear has been a major debilita- debilitating factor in my life that i deal with each and every day so folks that's it have an incredible weekend improve always in always i'm out